Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. Okay, can you guys still hear me? I moved the microphone a little bit. Okay, great. Okay, so as I mentioned, the, the topic of today's talk is obstacles. Um, and Lama asked me to talk about this because I had been working with him on it. And so I made some notes about how to approach the topic. And the first question that came to mind for me was, obstacle to what? <laughs> what are we even talking about? And so I just assumed that what, what Lama meant was obstacles in meditation uh, during shamatha practice. You know, what is it that takes my attention away from the object of my meditation, which is usually my breath? Um, so I had already started keeping a meditation journal. And so once I received this assignment, I thought, great, well, I can just start observing things and writing it down. So that proved to be really helpful. Um, so this is what I came up with. Um, and I think that these obstacles are pretty universal. I don't, you guys might disagree, but we'll have a Q&A. We can maybe talk about it. Uh, first is my sitting posture. Um, if I am uncomfortable on the cushion, that's going to distract me from my breath right away. Um, what that usually looks like is I'll be fidgeting in response to discomfort or with my vision. If I'm meditating with my eyes open, I'm not really focusing on my breath, but I'm like staring a hole into whatever's in front of me. So my attention is out here and not in here. Um, so as soon as I start to feel that physical discomfort or wake up to the fact that I'm drifting off kind of into a trance, obviously my, my focus is not on my breath. Um, another thing that comes up is my discursive mind likes to provide stories to me. Um, a lot of times what that looks like is I'll just be rehearsing a conversation from earlier in the day, um, or I'll have like this really great idea about how something really should be done like this certain way, and I know, okay, and so I'm going to do it like that. I'm like, hello, you know, I'm not paying attention to my breath. Um, or sometimes I will just drift off into fantasy land with a story. Um, <clears throat> So when it's not the discursive mind, then a lot of times I also have an emotional storm. So I'll just be overcome with emotion. Sometimes I do get clarity on a situation in my life. So I'm kind of doing a little bit of processing in meditation, which is helpful. But again, you know, taking my way, my attention away from my breath, or I'll just be overcome with feelings of like frustration or despair, um, hopelessness, deep sorrow, not really sure where that's coming from. I'll become concerned and then start really paying attention to the emotions. Um, so those are like three things, but what really distracts me and I think what comes up more often than not when I'm really seriously meditating is I'll get what I call these little zingers, which are awarenesses of unskillful behavior from like past events. Um, they'll just come to mind and I'll start seeing things really clearly about how I showed up and it's kind of like one of those moments where you're just like, oh my God, like I cannot believe I said that or I did that. And there's no, I mean, I can try to turn away um, because I can feel it in my body. You know, my body will tighten up. My, my back gets really rigid, but my heart center starts to crumple and I just want to push it away and I want to go and I want to hide. Um, so more often than not, that that's what I'm experiencing in meditation. Um, and so how do I work with those obstacles? You know, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, there's an obstacle. There are ways to work with them. Um, so with the physical discomfort, 
I brought some resources today. This book is uh, Loving Embodied Presence, which was written by Lama, and it offers really excellent instructions for the correct sitting posture, whether you're on a cushion or in a chair. And they're designed to help you stay balanced so that you don't have um, the sensation of maybe like falling forward or you don't have to like tighten up your body to hold the posture so that you're using your body's natural alignment with gravity to be able to sit comfortably. And so I found that that works really well. Um, in addition to the, the sitting posture, Lama also suggests in the book, you know, exercising to make sure that your body is in good, healthy shape so you can build some of the muscle that you need to be able to sit upright for a little while. Um, so I practice yoga, but I also occasionally will attend the workout sessions that we offer here at the temple. Um, on the Sundays that Lama teaches, they're at 1.30 in the dojo, and um, those are really great too. We do like some weight lifting, like light weight lifting and some calisthenics, and it's really fun to be there with everyone doing that together. And it's like enough, you know, it's, that's, that's enough. Um, when it comes to the discursive mind, what I have started to rely on more is mantra practice. Um, here at the temple, I've been exposed to that through the Vajrasattva practice, which is offered during the phases of the moon. Dirk usually offers that, and so I really appreciate him being here. Um, it's usually at 9 p.m. on those nights, but it changes depending on the phase of the moon. So it could be like Tuesday this week and Wednesday next week or however it falls. And the way that that works is when you start to notice the discursive mind, you say, okay, now it's time for me to chant. And my experience is, is working with that chant gives the mind something to chew on while you're making that U-turn back to the breath. And so once I'm reciting the mantra, whatever story or fantasy, whatever was going on before, now is a lot less compelling. And so I can, I can step away from it and then eventually return to my breath. Um, so I'm really grateful for that practice. Um, the emotional storms. Lama also suggests in the same book, you know, how to approach mindfulness. And part of it is being friendly towards yourself and really not having an expectation of what your meditation session is going to go like um, and allowing yourself to be your own best friend and really work on that. Um, so that, that was really hard for me because I tend to think of those obstacles as being my fault, like somehow I caused them or created them. And so Lama suggested to me, he's like, he's like, no, he's like, the attitude is one of, great, I found the obstacle. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I took that literally. And so to integrate what Lama's teaching and to really get better at, at rejoicing and seeing the obstacle, I wrote up a note card that I placed on my altar and it says in big font, great, I found the obstacle. <laughs> so when I'm sitting there meditating, I can visually remind myself like, oh, that's the attitude I want to adopt so that when I see it, I can be happy about it. And that releases a lot of the anguish around having the obstacle to begin with. Um, so yes, I'm really happy to be able to share that with you guys. And I do think it's kind of funny to have these literal reminders, you know, but if that works, great, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, so working with those zingers of awareness, um, I tried for a long time pushing away the realizations, right? And sure, that was kind of like a temporary relief. But the thing about that is that they come back up. Um, I would liken it to like having like an inflated beach ball and trying to keep it underwater. I was like, okay, it works for so long, but everything is working against you uh, when you're trying to maintain that kind of pressure. 
And so eventually it's going to come back up again um, because the emotions and the processing haven't been allowed to cycle through. Um, so now what I do is adopting that attitude of friendliness, I just surrender to them and I do my best to observe them and just not turn away and just really focus on not turning away. And that's usually enough. It's not that I need to like engage in a dialogue or assess the situation or anything like that. I'm just allowing them to play out and then they can cycle through and then I can learn from them. Um, something that helps me be able to be curious is if I can imagine those emotions and the experience of visiting her as being like water in a swimming pool and I'm kind of standing over the edge and looking at the water like can I see through the water enough to like the mosaic at the bottom of the pool to see what's really going on that way I'm not not short-sighting myself and can I see the situation clearly um, so I've made some progress with that but what I've learned in that process is that reaction that intention to turn away is so strong it's, I miss it sometimes. I, I do that and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. And then the moment is gone and I've missed it. And whereas before I felt relief, like lucky, you know, like, oh good, I got, got out of that one. Now I'm like disappointed because I'm not learning as much as I realized I could. And how sad, you know, cause it came up and now it's gone. Um, so I feel like that's probably a sign that I'm able to look at it a little bit more closely. Um, so of course, you know, haha, like I'm being okay, I'll just talk about what it's like to face obstacles on the cushion. Well, once I started paying attention to them, especially when I started writing them down, so I'd have something to talk about, then I started becoming more aware of them just in my everyday, like what I call walking around life, you know, um, seeing how in my relationships, whether I'm at work or I'm at home, uh, talking with strangers in society or even like with my dogs, I'm aware that I'm just not seeing things clearly. It's like, there's just some sort of like filter in front of my vision and I don't understand exactly what's going on. Um, and so I was like, well, what is that about? You know, like, where does that come from? And so through the Buddha Dharma program, the little bit that I've participated in it so far, my experience is that those blockages in vision come from a deeply held unconscious and I think sometimes conscious belief in a, in a solid self and a separate self. And I'll, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so a couple of months ago, I was, I was reading for the Buddha Dharma program and I lucked upon a YouTube video of venerable Tubden Chodron giving a Dharma talk. And she was talking on the, on the same topic of the solid self in the context of understanding the aggregates. And, um, I just thought I would mention really quick that she's going to be here in April during the Easter holiday weekend. So if you are interested in sitting with her or just even learning more about who she is, uh, the information for the event is on our website and you can register there. She's from Washington. She's a really highly respected nun um, in the Vajrayana community and we're really excited to have her and she's going to be here. Um, so in that Dharma talk, she was relating that sense of a solid self that arises, like if somebody mispronounces your name or if you're really angry about something um, or if you just like have this feeling of like, well, this is just me, like, you know, this is just, this is just me right now and this is just who I am. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, right? Like we've all had that experience at one point or another. Um, 
And so, you know, that includes me. But right now, you know, that's not really the main obstacle that's up for me. Right now, uh, that leads me to having this sense of an inherent self. Because right now, I am working full-time, and I'm going to school full-time. And I've never done that before. Um, and I really love it. I'm really, really excited about what I'm studying in school. I have no qualms about it. And then I also want to have like some free time outside of those two things, right? And so I want to be at Temple. I want to go to yoga. Um, but my schedule is pretty packed. And so the obstacle that I'm working with right now is just around the, this general concept of I don't have time. And what that looks like in my daily life and my relationships is saying things like, well, I don't have time to, I can't go to, I can't be present for. And what that all boils down to is I don't have it to give. Um, and how, so how does time control me that way? So my thinking around it is something like this. And I tried to like outline this as clearly as, as I could, because it's kind of automatic and to see it clearly, it's a little bit challenging, but I think I got it. So around time, there are lots of ways that we establish and reinforce time in our society, right? Like we have calendars, we have watches. Uh, clocks, we have things like anniversaries, birth dates, deadlines, grace periods, if you miss the deadline, uh, so on and so forth. So that's the, a big way of how our society functions. Um, so my condition and automatic relationship to time is something like, if there are things I need to get done, and there are only so many hours in the day or only so many days until the deadline, and with the deadline approaching, there are consequences if I don't meet that deadline, then time must be the arbiter of my well-being. So my very sense of being okay in the world is dependent upon my relationship with time and obeying that schedule of time. Um, so therefore, I must protect my sense of self from the consequences of not adhering to the time. And that's when I start to see that separation. So my relationship to time as an inherently existing entity quickly translates into an inherently existing self. And it's just basically like the two things. And there's no time for anyone else or anything else other than what I need to do. Um, so what I can see now, after reflecting on it a little bit, is that it undermines my ability to be generous, um, to practice jhana, which is the first paramita. And that serves as an obstacle to seeing the inherently empty self. So that's just kind of where I'm at right now in my relationship to time and trying to overcome that as an obstacle. I did talk to Lama about it, and his suggestion was, when you feel like you don't have enough time, why don't you slow down? And I was like, that, I'm so resistant to that suggestion. Um, but it's, it works. You know, it really does. Because, okay, rushing, how often when we rush do we really do it the right way, right? You know, we're going to make mistakes possibly without even realizing it or try to take shortcuts and then they come back around to, to bite us. And so by slowing down, which makes sense, I can do things in a more present frame of mind. I'm also a lot nicer to people because I'm not cutting them off because I don't have time. Um, and actually I'm getting things done and I'm finding out I have more time than I think. That's the other thing. Um, so I'm really grateful for that instruction so the, those are some of the ways I work with the obstacles. That in addition to that, I would say that taking refuge is a really important part of working with obstacles. 
Um, I took refuge with Lama in March of last year, March 31st, and started to receive instructions from him on shamatha practice, uh, both in Darshan and as part of a group that we have here at the temple. We have a meditation group on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights where we practice shamatha meditation. I'm, I'm one of four facilitators for the Tuesday night group, which is in the dojo. We start at 6.30. And so he gave us some books to read to like inform our practice and to help us be able to uh, work with whoever comes into the group. And one of them is Calming the Mind by Jen Lam Rinpa. And this is um, a book for a year-long retreat that he taught in Seattle um, a few years ago. And then another one is Cultivating Attention uh, basic Instruction in Meditation by Pe Ken McLeod. And so in these two books, um, at least some of what they've written about are how to work with different levels of energy during shamatha, where whether you're, su like if you're super tired or feeling really lazy, like how to kind of boost your energy level, or if you're feeling super stressed or really distracted, how to harness that energy and then again come back to the breath. So I've been really uh, finding a lot of good instruction on that. And there's also some mantra meditation in those books too. Um, and then another book that Lama suggested is The Kindness of Others, written by Geshe Jampa Tegchak. And I think I'm saying his last name correctly. I could be mispronouncing it. And in this book, he's talking about bodhicitta. And so I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, but so those instructions that Lama gave to me, you know, in the years that I've been practicing meditation, I've been practicing for about eight years. I've been on a lot of retreats. I've lived in ashrams for like several months and I've never had a home practice as strong as it is now because of Lama's encouragement and just having somebody to work with that you trust your guru, um, really building up my confidence to become awakened to my own Buddha nature, which is the second refuge. Um, and the Dharma books, you know, just receiving instruction on how to do the practice. Um, that would be the third refuge. And the fourth refuge is Sangha. Sangha. And that's all of you guys that are here today. And everybody who wouldn't maybe otherwise be here but couldn't make it today. You know, um, what we're able to do for each other by being here and listening and practicing together is to offer a deeper level of understanding about where we are in our practice. And what the obstacles each of us face are and offer that compassion and friendliness that I mean I don't think that we've ex have the opportunity to experience in a lot of other realms in our daily lives um, so I, th I feel like this temple and every temple um, where Sangha gathers is very valuable and our relationships outside of temple as well of course so okay to get back to bodhicitta a little bit um, so how does that factor into working with obstacles? Um, bodhicitta is how I understand it, meaning the determination to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. And I literally like took that from the book because I've tried quoting it before and just gotten it totally wrong. I'm like, I, I'm not that familiar with it yet. I need to quote the book. Um, so Geshe Tegchak says that even if you don't genuinely agree or, or genuinely feel this desire to become awakened for the benefit of all beings, just work with it on principle. Just like set that intention while you're meditating um, in your daily life and then see what comes of it. And so it's kind of like an act as if principle. And so I did that. And 
it's interesting because it's like the way that I relate to time and discover a fixed sense of self with time when I'm in that cyclic dynamic, when I break out of that and start working with bodhicitta, that becomes the main foundation for me to be able to do things in the world. So just like we have that self-reinforcing cycle of like the independent self and everything else is independent and the world becomes like that, when I waken up to the value of practicing bodhicitta, those separations start to disappear and I genuinely start to feel like I do want to awaken for the benefit of other beings. Because during meditation, I'm becoming more aware of my own suffering, like I discussed, um, how I'm compounding my suffering by blaming myself for my suffering or thinking that it somehow it is my fault, stopping that. Um, and then being able to really empathize with other people in my daily life, you know, whether I'm at work or in Sangha, and seeing how they suffer too. You know, um, you just like everyday kind of situations, like the train was late and now it's really crowded and people are uncomfortable, you know. Is it helpful to get mad at the engineer or to even complain about it? No, not really. Um, or the water cooler won't dispense water. I was like, oh, I just really am so thirsty and why isn't it working? You know, and then to, you know, go from there and, and to multiply the unhappiness instead of just seeing it and accepting it and then asking myself what can actually be done. Um, we, I think we all do that. And so by by awakening to how I'm doing that, trying to make some changes, and then seeing how others do that, that bodhicitta is just like fired up because I'm like, it helps me. It, I'm relieving myself of my own suffering, and I naturally want that for others when I work with the bodhicitta principle. Um, okay, so that is what I prepared for today. So I really appreciate you guys listening to my story, uh, my experience. Um, I'd like to open it up for Q&A. If anybody has something that they want to talk about off the top of their head. Susan. I was really interested in what you had to say about time. Yeah. Because that is like, yeah, huge. And that Well, you, I don't know, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was that you said. How was it? Oh, I, that when Lama said to relax, mm -hmm. that, may, that made a lot of sense because I can feel that if one relaxes, then the stress and the anxiety caused by time pressure yeah. is going to get relieved to some degree, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's something similar to like when we're meditating and we're doing the shamatha practice, you know, we observe like all of these antagonisms that come up, but we keep returning to the breath. I feel like it's that activity, that process, but while actually like doing something like, you know, writing an email or um, putting together like a file or something like I would do at work. Um, so I can see all those stressors in the stories about like, oh, you have to hurry up, you have all this other stuff to do, and you know, and it's there, but I'm not reacting to that, and I can focus on the task that I'm doing, so I'm not overlooking something or, um, or making a mistake that's going to cause me to have to go back and do that task again. 
plus, I'm not reinforcing all those negative stories. You know? Well, and you also talked about consequences, and I wonder if some of the consequences that we think are um, going to be at play really are actually going to happen or actually going to matter. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, the consequences, is, I wonder how much of that is, is um, part of our story and not like real. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I don't know if anybody else wants to comment on that. Um, I, I've noticed my own stories. Yeah. Can you wait for the mic? Yeah, only because we're recording this. Well, it seems almost like it's a self-fulfillment, uh, right? Because it, it seems like your thought process is your, uh, what I, because I've been thinking the same thing. Oh, I don't have time. And then I'm realizing, well, what about space? I mean, they're interrelated. It's almost like we forget about space, and it's like, oh, there's time. Mm -hmm. And so that if you're, you know, feeling just this time urgency, you're not acknowledging that you have a choice about your space. Mm -hmm. And then also, like I said, it seems like it's just a self-fulfilling prediction, right? Because mm -hmm. we create our realities to a degree by our thoughts. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure people have comments on that, definitely. Yeah. I was thinking about the on the cushion, off the cushion. Um, and you know, as you're talking about, you see what's happening, the zinger, um, and then just observing without reacting. I mean, like, you have that ouch kind of thing, but then you're not, like, going and doing something, right, because you're on the cushion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, like, with time, you know, we set a time, like, 12 minutes, 24 minutes, and that's, this is our time to meditate, so we're not feeling this time pressure while, that, while we're in that time. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're out off the cushion and we're feeling this time pressure, it's, it's like, you know, your analogy of looking down the swimming pool, it's like we're in the waters, thrashing around. So how do we carry that spacious awareness when we're in the thick of it? Yeah, that's, that's right. a good question. Like how is that, how do we perceive time and when we're in, in it, not just on the cushion, so to speak? Oh, yeah. I, that's a really great question. Um, the thing about space is setting boundaries around time, like, it's, you know, and not being overgiving and not allowing others to come in and take that time. I've had to learn that. Being in the middle of it, I've, that's a pretty profound question. Um, I don't have like the answer to that. The way that I would work with it is like in shamatha practice, um, you know, are there visual or, or mental cues that we can give ourselves? Or if it's just like, like seriously, like, like hot and thick and you're just like thrashing around, like you're saying, like how do we pull ourselves out of that? Um, I don't know. Um, one thing that I do is I practice um, in my Outlook calendar at my job, because I'm sitting in front of the computer like eight hours a day, I have a meditation reminder that pops up every day at 9 a.m., and then I snooze it for 30 minutes. So, so it comes up every half an hour, and that helps me stop whatever I'm doing and just like take a couple of breaths, because more often than not, it's not that hectic at my job. It really isn't. Um, 
so I can I can do that and I'm like oh good you know like and so th I think cultivating that habit might be helpful you know just routinely stopping when it isn't super serious yeah does anybody else have any suggestions on that we've got two three yeah One thing to keep in mind from the history of this country and the history of trains is the fact that East Coast, Central, Mountain Time, Pacific Time were all set by railroad companies. So it's very arbitrary. God didn't set it. Nature didn't set it. The railroad companies set it. So my estimation... It's so arbitrary. There's plenty of time. And the one thing that I've found from my meditation is if I give, I use a timer, if I give too much time, I can use it all up. So I set an hour. I can use it up. If I only set 20 minutes, I'm looking at it every five minutes to see if I've made it. But when there's too much time, an hour is too much time for me for meditation, then I can use it all. I don't know if that's really obscure, but... <laughs> what do you mean by use it all? I don't pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so I wind up right. 45 to an hour's worth of meditation because I don't... I sit down with too much meditation, you know, too much time, too plenty of time, and I don't pay any attention, and so it allows me to truly relax. Yeah, that's what it is. It allows me truly to relax. And when I'm relaxed, then I can just um, use it up. So you're generous with your time. Yeah, yourself. it's really, I found it's really important because I'm like a time freak. I can arrive an hour early and feel I'm late. Mm -hmm. So when I have too much time, it's like, oh, God, it's an incredible wealth. Mm -hmm. so. All right, thank you. Patty, did you want to share something? And we have one more person. Does it work? Oh, it's working. Um, the other way I deal with this is, uh, you know, we do live in this Western world where we think we were born and then we have this life and we have to get married and have kids and we've got to make a lot of money and then we've got to do all this stuff and then if we die and we don't do it, then it's all over. And, of course, the one nice idea about Buddhism, which works for me, is that we've actually been here since there was no beginning, there was no end. We've been here forever and we're going to be here forever and there is no escape. So it doesn't really matter. You're not in a hurry. Mm. What is it, you know, I've often thought to myself, why are we in such a hurry? Like, why am I in such a hurry? Where, where am I going exactly? And when I get there, what am I going to do? And, and, and so why are we in a hurry? You just stop being in a hurry. You know, just let go a little bit, so... Mm. I mean, there's things you give up with that, too. I mean, if you want to have kids and you everything, and everyone's dying and there's hospitals and all this, you have to worry about that stuff a little bit. But yeah. on the other hand, do you really have to worry about that stuff? If, you know, I don't know. I, I often wrestle with that. And sometimes I try to get myself in that idea of, like, I really am been here forever and I really am going to be here forever and there really is no escape. So 
I'm just going to enjoy my walk and, and <laughs> meditate because it doesn't make any difference. So that is one other way of approaching it. I don't know, it works for me sometimes. So. Thanks, Greg. Right behind you. I think when you're managing time, because there's so many things around time and the state you're in right then, is it like I'm late for an appointment or is it I have five things I have to plan out in the next two weeks? So there are different amounts of time that you're managing. If I'm late for an appointment, I'm usually stressed. And I'm going to be stressed all the way there because I'm afraid I'm not going to get there. So now there's fear. And then there's also failure. There's, I have all these things to do in the next three weeks. And so there's a feeling of failure if I can't get them all done. And when that particular sensation for me comes up, if I'm aware in a way I... I have a practice of saying to myself, wait a minute, I trust myself. I trust myself. It always gets done. It always happens the way I'm not a flaky person. I get things done that I say I'm going to get done. And so if I can just tell myself I trust myself to do it, it kind of stops all the worry. It gives me a feeling of being grounded and that I'm, there's nothing to worry about. I'm not going to fail. All those other thoughts that come in. That's awesome. Thank you. Also, it sounds like you're really like affirming your ability to be effective in your own life. Yeah, that's beautiful. And kind of like what Greg was saying too about like failing at what though? Like, is it according to what you think is important or someone else? You know? Yeah. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Andrea. Hi, everyone. Hi. I was thinking about that. Um, I I get stress in the anticipation of all the things that I'm going to have to do and thinking ahead because it's a little bit of the fear of the unknown and pretty often when I'm doing it that vanishes like my work. I m- might think of all the work I have to do and... Uh, when I'm when I'm doing it, I I can sort of approach the place where I am when I'm sitting, you know, and and meditating, um, and I try to bring the the feeling that I have when I'm meditating into activity. You know, I can I can be like fine when I'm just sitting, and then when I get into activity, I go into impatience a lot more easily, and. Um, and, and I'm trying to bring that with me, like if I'm in physical activity, like to remember my breathing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not working all that well <laughs> so far. But I thought of it. And I also really liked your analogy of the zingers, and, and you used a, a metaphor of water, and I almost immediately thought of like this big beaker of water, and, mm-hmm. and like little like little bubbles or something going through it. And, and, that, and, and that it's already partly clear that I can even perceive them, you know, otherwise they'd just be part of the background irritation, you know. Yeah. And so I sort of don't mind following them a little bit, you know. So, you know that, and, I, and, and you alluded to that, you know, welcoming them or not turning away. Anymore. That's all. Thank, thank you. 
Yeah, that is a really good point. It's like if you're noticing the zingers, like that's a good sign. Yeah, it's like a reason to celebrate. Okay, it's 12.03, um, so I thought we would take a break now. Patty, you, did you want to share something before we take a break? Okay, okay. Yeah. Especially uh, this very last comment book, and also what, um, it's like we're not really getting rid of things as much as noticing things that we didn't notice before, like in the water, and we see the mosaic at the bottom. Just uh, like Lama told you, to slow down enough to notice, you know, what, what's going on within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, returning to the time. Ha ha. Um, so it, it's a little bit afternoon. Uh, I thought maybe we could take like a 10-minute break and then come back for another 12 minutes of sitting. Does that sound good to you guys? Sure. Okay, we'll do that. Okay. Thank you. This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.